0: The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.d e a n b i b l e.org or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. A couple of announcements. For those of you who were not here for the congregational meeting on Sunday night, we did, uh, the congregation did approve, by a vote of 33 to 4, to uh, go ahead and move to the new location off the Beltway. So we have to get involved in that. And, you know, I don't know the talent of everybody that's here, but I know that there's hidden talents uh, that some of you have in relationship to planning, moving, design, uh, interior decorating, uh, lifting things, hammering nails, Painting walls. You've got great talents, and so if, uh, if you've got any of these hidden talents, you can come out of the woodwork and let us know because uh, we just have a lot of things to, to pull together to uh, make this move. And Doug's sort of ramrodding. Doug Karn is ramrodding the whole uh, thing and trying to organize it. So we need a lot of prayer because there's a lot to do. There are a lot of details. We have to talk with prep school people. Choir, uh, all kinds of different different groups within the church having to do with the kitchen and all these different things, just to make sure we get things all in place. Second thing I wanted to announce: there was because I've had three people ask me in the last couple of days. There was an announcement that I was flashing up there for a while that I was going to be going out to uh, Country Bible Church in Brenham this Sunday. That got canceled. Mike uh, decided he wasn't going to go on vacation this weekend. So I'm not going out there. And so in case any of you were had written that into your calendar had planned to go out there, uh make a note that that I'm not going out there this weekend. All right, before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use first John one nine if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the provision that you have given us in this new location where we can move and that will be ours 24-7. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide for us. We thank you for the way you have already provided so richly and abundantly in terms of the financial needs of this congregation, and we just continue to trust you to take care of every need. Father, thank you for these in the congregation who have such a desire to know your word, to study your word, ...to grow and to uh, mature in their spiritual life. We pray that you would continue to uh, enable us through logistical grace to meet these needs. And Father, we also pray that you would uh, continue to guide and direct us as we study your word. Now as we open scripture this evening, we pray that God the Holy Spirit who indwells us, fills us... ...and teaches us will help us to understand your word and how to apply it in our own thinking, our own lives... And indeed, in our own society. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis 19. Genesis 19, although we may not even get anywhere in Genesis 19 tonight. This is all by way of introduction to understand what is going on in Sodom and how this event in Sodom and Gomorrah, with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the homosexuality that's rampant there, how that helps us as believers to understand certain dynamics in the course of a culture or a society. And we'll finish up tonight by going to Judges 19, actually, which is a a parallel chapter. In Judges 19, you see the same dynamics going on. There's tremendous parallel between the two episodes in Genesis 19 and Judges 19, but both of these are inserted into the Scripture for a specific purpose, and that is that they depict for us what happens when a society, when a culture completely gives itself over to pagan thought then how self-destructive that is. See, the Bible not only teaches us about man's condition as a sinner and the need for salvation and that God provides salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ and that there's only one way to salvation, and that's by faith alone in Christ alone, but the Scripture teaches us how to think about every dimension of reality and whether that has to do with more academic disciplines such as uh, physics or geology or history or uh, even theater and drama and art and music. Uh, the Bible also teaches us how to think about government, how to think about politics and law. The Bible gives us a worldview and a framework for understanding uh, all of culture and all of society from a biblical viewpoint. In fact, there's a study that came out about a week or two ago called the Barna Report. George Barna has, is a sociologist who's a evangelical and has been tracking trends in the church and in religion in America for some 20 years, published a number of books, has a, a large organization that conducts numerous surveys and studies, and in the last couple of weeks, he came out with a, uh, a rather large study. I'd love to read the whole thing, but it only cost $4,000 to purchase it, so I don't think that's in our budget right now. But he is sending out newsletters, email newsletters every week. You can also go to his website and read these articles. They're quite uh, interesting. And in these articles he's sending out, he's giving a synopsis of the findings that they've done in this massive survey they've conducted. And one of them is that less than 5% of Americans, or about 5% of Americans, have a Christian worldview. Less than 5%, excuse me, I misstated that. Less than about 5% of evangelicals have a Christian worldview. Five, less than 5% of evangelicals have a Christian world view. And that's because we just don't teach doctrine anymore. It's plain and simple. People don't teach that at all. In fact, today I was, got an email with another direction to another survey and was looking at that. And in that particular, uh, survey, the, uh, author, and it was, I forget the name of the group now, it's some kind of, religious watch group that's kind of half good and half not. You know, it's a mixed bag. But in his analysis, the author points out that what the trend in Christianity the last 20 or 30 years is that people are more and more interested in personal forms of worship than they are in what he called dogma, which is what we would call doctrine. In other words, people are more concerned about going someplace where they can raise their hands or dance around or be stimulated by certain kinds of music because it's all about what goes on inside of me rather than what I'm being taught to think in terms of the Word of God. So that personal styles of worship is much more important to most evangelicals than the truth that is being taught. In other words, don't confuse me with facts, just let me feel good. And we see this across the board and it's expressed in what's known as praise and worship, seeker service, all of these different forms, which of course we're never going to follow in this particular congregation because we hold to a biblical worldview. And we have to use a biblical worldview in order to analyze what's going on around us. And one of the trends in our contemporary culture today is this pressure that comes from the homosexual lobby. And this is why I'm taking time to look at uh, what the Scripture illustrates in Genesis 19 and Judges 19 in terms of homosexuality and its relationship to culture. And last time I started off by looking at this well-known uh, description of the decline ...of nations, the cycle of civilizations, as first articulated by a classics professor named Alexander Tyler in 1787. And this is the standard cycle of civilizations. He was asked the question about uh, what contributed to the fall of the Athenian Republic, and he replied with this statement. From bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance... From abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, and from dependence back into bondage. And so you have this ongoing cycle of civilization that is apparent in numerous Civilizations and cultures. You can take this as a blueprint and just lay it over numerous cultures in the course of time. And of course, when we look at this from the perspective of what the Bible teaches, we would understand bondage to mean not only bondage in terms of physical or economic slavery to another nation or another culture or another people or ethnic group, but that we would relate this to spiritual slavery, enslavement to our own sin nature. That's, of course, what Jesus was referring to when he had made the mention of the fact to the the Pharisees that uh, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they were all upset about the fact that, well, we're free. Well, they actually weren't. They were in bondage to their legalism, in bondage to their sin nature, in bondage to Rome, and they were uh, unwilling to face that. So we see this cycle as people come out of of bondage, they focus on a spiritual faith or a spiritual truth, a spiritual reality. And this then gives them courage because courage comes from your spiritual life. And then that moves towards uh, liberty. We having a problem up here? Okay. Uh, just ignore Eddie. From abundance to complacency. Anyway, this is the cycle. and We're familiar with that. We've gone over this before. What happens is you go through that deterioration and you go through degeneracy, there are certain things that are typical of almost every culture down through the course of time. And so when we come to Genesis 19, as I introduced last time, we ought to ask the question, why is this episode even in here? From Genesis 12 through Genesis 24, it's Abraham, 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 Abraham. Every episode focuses on Abraham. And all of a sudden we have this lengthy chapter that focuses on the depravity and the perversion of Sodom and God's judgment there. And, of course, that does relate to what's going on in Abraham's life because we see that God is working in history to protect Abraham from the degeneracy of the Canaanites for the people in Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities of the valley are all Canaanites. They are the most degenerate of the entire Uh, Canaanite culture. And so God is going to judge them, and that is a foreshadowing both of the uh, future degeneracy of the Canaanites, they're headed there, it's just that the Sodomites were a little bit ahead of them, and of God's future judgment on the Canaanites when He would bring the Jews back from Egypt and tell them to annihilate every man, woman, and child in the land of Canaan. So, this has implications for understanding the dangers of of, uh, paganism for the Jews, and it serves as a forewarning. This is what can happen to you if you fall into the trap of paganism and following the false gods and the idols of the Canaanites who are living in the land. And, in fact, what we will see tonight when we jump over to Judges 19 is that's exactly what did happen. When they got into the land and they refused to fulfill God's command to annihilate every man, woman, and child among the Canaanites, they began to peacefully coexist, and then they began to intermarry with the Canaanites. And before long, the society among the Jews was no longer distinct as it had been mandated under the Mosaic Law, but now they were living, acting, and thinking in ways that were no different from Those around them. And we see the same dynamics going on in our own culture. As we look at the history of the United States and the impact of biblical Christianity on the United States, we see that it has shaped our views of social institutions. Now, for some reason, there's been some criticism of evangelicals and fundamentalists in the last several years because we turned out at the polls last year. And in 2000, and evangelicals made social issues a primary factor in voting. And there are others who are critical of this and say, well, there's economic issues, there's foreign policy, there's these other things. But from a biblical viewpoint, what we learn from the scriptures is social issues are crucial. In fact, what we learn from the Bible, more than anything else, it is spiritual issues that drive the economy. It's spiritual issues that drive politics and the understanding of law. And this is why God pointed out to Israel, when you read through the cycles of judgment as we did the last couple of Sunday nights in Leviticus 26, that God makes this connection that if you obey me, you will be prosperous economically. If you obey the Mosaic law, then you will you will be, uh, if you obey the Mosaic Law, then there will be abundant fruit in the field, that the trees will be uh, plentiful, that uh, there will be rain will be plentiful, there won't be any drought. All of these things will happen, but there's no direct cause and effect in in observable empirical science between a person's belief system and meteorological changes, and yet... What unifies all this is that we have a God who is the one who sustains and preserves and governs all of the systems of the earth so that there are cause and effects between belief systems and what's happening meteorologically, what's happening economically, what's happening uh, politically within various cultures. And so both Genesis 19 and Judges 19 uh Illustrate this for us. Now, let's just review briefly some of the introductory principles I began last time. Let's skip through this slide. In 2504 BC, we have the episode of the Noahic flood. Now, I'm taking a precise date, assuming there are no gaps. In the genealogies. In fact, I, I read a highly technical article that came out in an Answers in Genesis journal called TJ this last week. If any of you want to get online, you may be able to download that off the Answers in Genesis.org site. And it was a highly technical discussion demonstrating, again, that you don't have gaps in the genealogies. Uh, There is one instance, we studied this when we went through Genesis 11, there is one alleged instance where there is what appears to be a name left out in Genesis that appears in the Luke 4 genealogy of the birth of Christ, but it's based on a textual error that entered into the transmission of the text after the New Testament, and it entered into the Septuagint, and I went through those arguments in the past. But if there are no gaps in the genealogies, then you can date the flood and you can date creation. And it may not be exactly 4004 B.C. as uh, Bishop James Usher uh, concluded, but it's pretty darn close. You're talking about a creation sometime sometime between 4,000 and 4400 BC give or take a little bit depending on how you add up the numbers. So we have the flood occurring in 2504 uh, BC and then within a couple of hundred years point this was a second point, the tower of babel occurred about 2200 BC and what happens between the flood and babel is illustrative of the decline of culture because in the flood You had eight people get off the ark. They all knew that there was one God. They all knew who that God was. They all knew salvation, and they all understood grace. And within 300 years, you have a population that probably grew to two or three million. And in that period of time, you have the rise of idolatry, nature religions, fertility cults, uh, the the deification of nature, and all of these other things. And then uh, you have the Tower of Babel incident, which pictures the human race rebelling against God, and then God shifting the plan to call out one nation, Abraham, and through, nation, through Abraham, he's going to establish a counterculture. So I went through this pretty uh, extensively last week. Point number one was the flood occurred 2500 B.C., 2504 Point number two, the Tower of Babel occurred about 2300 to 2200 B.C. Point number three, Abraham is born in 2166. Point number four, during this time, the human race expanded and you have the development of all of the idolatrous systems. Point number five, analyzed it spiritually, that during this time you went from eight people who were believers to two or three million who rejected Truth. There were only a handful that continued to hold up the truth So point number six Within three generations Nimrod, the grandson of Noah Perverted the truth into the nature religions Point number seven This deterioration is described in Romans 7, one seventeen and following All that just gives you the thought flow And then point number eight This was sort of a conclusion from those previous points. As part of the religious degeneration that takes place from the analysis in Romans 1, we see that first there is the defection from God, there is apostasy from the truth, but what goes hand in hand to that is a social and a sexual degeneracy. You can't separate the two. Once people depart from the truth of God's word, it affects the social structures and it affects their view of sexuality. And that's part of why we are ending up in the way we do in this country. And we see that illustrated in both Genesis and Judges 19. Now, we're cranking on a little new ground here. The ninth point is that as a result of this degeneracy, you develop either... Anarchy or tyranny. Why? Because what happens is there is a rejection of God as ultimate authority. And in the vacuum of God as the ultimate authority, something has to, has to move. If you're going to take God out of the picture, something has to become the ultimate authority. And it's always some element of creation. Or it's some element of society. Or it's some element of government. So you end up with one of two Uh, Polar opposites You either end up with tyranny Or you end up with anarchy The thing is if you end up with anarchy Everything's in chaos And somebody has to come in and bring order So once again that is Goes right back to tyranny And so there's some sort of bondage Or tyrannical despotism That is established And that's exactly what we see In the earliest civilizations You go back to Egypt You have the, the pharaohs from the earliest days, from the earliest dynasty, from the old kingdom in the, in the first dynasty, the Pharaoh is a god. And then you go up to the Mesopotamian kingdoms, and the, the, the leader, the king, isn't a god, but he is the uh, messenger or the mouthpiece of the gods. And throughout the ancient world, in the Hittite Empire, Assyrian Empire, the, the Mesopotamian Empires with Babylon, and over into Egypt, all of these Empires are built on tyrannical despots that go beyond anything we've witnessed even in the 20th century. So we can develop a couple of conclusions, two principles. Point number ten is a uh, positive statement of the principle. As biblical truth impacts a culture, it transforms that society with biblical norms and standards. Establishment truth, and the result is stability, order, peace, prosperity, and cultural advance. Let me repeat that again before I comment on it. As biblical truth impacts a culture, it transforms that society with biblical norms and standards, establishment truth, and the result is stability, order, peace, prosperity, and cultural advance. The classic example of this is what happened during the Reformation. If you look at where Western Europe was and where the Roman Catholic Church had taken it in the late Middle Ages, that you had uh, a number of internal problems with society. People were basically downtrodden. You didn't have freedom. You didn't have... Uh, a lot of economic growth, things were starting to break out in the 1400s, but that was because of the same factors that influenced and provided for the, the Reformation. You had a, a pre-Reformation, as it were, as a result of Wycliffe in, in London, uh, in the English area, and his followers who were called the Lollards, and they were translating the Bible into the common language of the people. And, of course, they were uh, persecuted. You had the Hussites in Bohemia and Czechoslovakia, and they were teaching the truth, and, and uh, they, were viewed also, they were persecuted as well by the Roman Catholic Church. But as the Reformation began to have its impact, you had an environment established in Western Europe for real freedom. And if you were to take a map, you can maybe imagine this in your, in your mind, if you were to take a world map, and you were to identify the nations where we have we've experienced in history the greatest levels of freedom. That would be, of course, North America, the United States, Canada, Britain. These English-speaking countries are the countries historically that have had the greatest expression of freedom. Then you would go to the next level of freedom, and you would identify other Reformation-impacted nations, such as Germany, Scandinavian countries, uh, Switzerland. Uh, these were areas that had an impact from the Reformation as well. Then the next here is the Roman Catholic countries, and you have Spain and France and Italy and Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, and these nations never experienced the kind of economic freedom and prosperity or individual freedom that you had in either the Germanic countries, Northern Europe, uh, that was impacted by Protestant theology or English speaking. And then you look at the rest of the world, and the rest of the world never developed concepts of freedom, never developed concepts of democracy, never had the kind of economic prosperity across the board available to every individual citizen that you have at the other end of the spectrum, for example, in the United States and British-speaking countries. Now, what makes a difference? What makes a difference is ultimately theology. It's one of the most practical illustrations that theology matters when it permeates the culture. And what came out of the Reformation was that you had leaders who were taking the Word of God and using it, to think through all the different areas of life, they were they were using it. In fact, many of the fathers of modern science were as interested in natural science and, and science. Others were interested in law. It's, it's fascinating to study how many theologians over the years have been lawyers. Schofield was a lawyer. Darby was a lawyer. Calvin was trained as a lawyer. Uh, Luther's father wanted him to be a lawyer, but he went into the ministry instead. I mean, there's an interesting connection there, but but many of the founders of the foundation of Western civilization were uh, men who were devout believers in the Word of God, and yet they had a tremendous impact in in their culture. Isaac Newton. You know, everybody knows about Isaac Newton and the apple and gravity. Isaac Newton wrote more about the Bible and commentaries on the Bible than he did about science. Of course, you'll never hear that in your biology class or a physics class, but he, he did. And, and a number of these other uh, founders of, of modern science uh, were that way. They were uh, intensely interested in the Scriptures. And uh, I believe it was Boyle, Boyle's Law in Law Chemistry, Boyle used all the money he made to finance missions. I mean, these were men who were who were understood that creation was all about what God had done, and then they studied creation itself from this biblical uh, world biblical vantage point, and that laid the foundation for modern civilization. And that foundation was laid in the 16th century, 17th century, and on into the 18th century. It wasn't until the shift from the 18th to the 19th century where pagan enlightenment ideas began to permeate the university structure of Western civilization that you started to see the the foreshadowings of our collapse. So the principle is that as biblical truth impacts a culture, it transforms that society with biblical norms and standards and establishment truth, and the result is going to be stability, order, peace, and prosperity. On the other hand, you have the opposite. This is point number 11. As biblical truth is rejected and diluted, biblical norms become demonized. Have you noticed that? Lately, people who hold to absolutes are demonized. What kind of troglodyte are you? You think this is wrong. So biblical, as biblical truth is rejected and diluted, biblical norms become demonized, and the result is social instability, disorder, chaos, a loss of prosperity, and cultural decline. Just think about it sometime when I was up in the Northeast, uh, one of the things we noticed was how much homosexual themes dominated in, on Broadway. And when you compare what, is, what passes for good theater and received Tony Awards in the last ten years compared to what was produced 50 or 60 years ago, it becomes evident of the impact that this worldview shift has on just, you know, just good taste and the advance in culture. Go to go to an art museum and look at the great artworks that came out of the Reformation period up through the Enlightenment, and compare that to, uh, you know, some of the modern art that came out in the 20th century. Because it's an expression of worldview. So the principle is: as biblical truth is rejected, it ricochets and Bounces off of everything in the culture So that everything deteriorates And if you want to know Why we have Supreme Court rulings today That take take the Ten Commandments out of the courtroom But then in what seems a very inconsistent manner Say it's okay for it to be outside And you have other decisions that are made About taking prayer out of the classroom And removing Ten Commandments From any display in the classroom Or discussion about God Or even creation you, to understand that, you have to go back and see how pagan thought has permeated culture for the last uh, couple of hundred years. But it always degenerates, and the classic book in the Scripture that describes this is the book of Judges, where you have the Jews start off, where they're victorious, they're conquering the Canaanites, they're having victory. And that's in the first chapter. Then by the end of the first chapter, they're compromising. They're not annihilating all of the Canaanites. And then by the time you get to the end of Judges, they're not any different from the Canaanite cultures that they're supposed to destroy. And we see the same kind of progression in in this society when you look at uh, American culture in the 1600s and how it was impacted by Uh, biblical teaching and biblical theology and compared to where it has come today we see the same kind of digression now what are the dynamics for this well this is the next point point number twelve that is that we have to recognize that there are biblical norms of divine establishment there are biblical norms of divine establishment that God built into creation these are established for everyone, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. And let's just review these. The first is the the, uh, institution of individual responsibility. This was established before the fall. God established a test for man in the garden. And prohibited him from eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In individual responsibility, or we could even say individual accountability, we recognize that man is accountable to God for his decisions. We are responsible. God holds us responsible for our choices for the decisions that we make. It's not the environment. It's not our parents. It's not a lack of education. It's not the fact that we grew up in poverty or we grew up in wealth or whatever it may be. Ultimately, it always boils down to volition, and God is demonstrating this in all of human history. So in individual responsibility, God's the authority. The second divine institution is marriage, and marriage is between a man and a woman. It's not between two men. It's not between two women. It's not between a man and two boys. As disgusting as that is, we're seeing that on the horizon. There's websites promoting uh, man boy marriages and all of these things. And just think about this 30 years ago, 30 years ago, would you have suspected that we were going to have a vote in the state of Texas as to whether or not we would approve? homosexual, sodomite marriage? Oh, we wouldn't have thought that. Not at all. Well, guess what? Within the next 30 years, we'll probably, if if, if something doesn't change, we're probably going to have to vote on whether or not we're going to legalize man-boy marriage. Because that's where paganism goes. It is a constant spiral of degeneracy. So the Bible establishes that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that the man is the authority in the home. And then we have the family as the third divine institution, and the authority in the home are the parents. Now, the important thing to note is that th- these three divine institutions were established before the fall. They're established in Genesis 2, and the provision for family is, is understood in Genesis 2. I think it's verse 24, that for this reason a man should, or, no, excuse me, it's established at the very beginning in Genesis uh, one twenty-six to twenty-eight. That man should be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But something happens in Genesis three. There's there's the fall. There's the intrusion of sin, and sin affects the nature of man, the depravity of man, and so it it affects every one of these. Man uh, demonstrates his irresponsibility right off the bat. The 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 man said, "God, it's the woman you gave me." I was, how sophisticated. In one sentence, he blamed God and the woman. I mean, he learned fast. See, sin doesn't really need a, a, a big learning curve. It just, it, it just goes right there very quickly. It's our natural response. It's the woman you gave me. It's not my fault at all. And then the woman, of course, blamed the serpent, and the serpent uh, didn't have anybody else to blame into the road. It affects the marriage. Remember, there's the, the outline. and As God outlines the curse, the consequences for sin, he says to the woman that, her desire will be to control the man. Now, that verse in Genesis, I think it's 3.15, says simply, "...your desire is for the man." And there's a lot of folks who took that to mean some sort of sexual desire. And I know that, that men, if you haven't gone, through me on this, gone with me on this study, then uh, you may be a little disappointed to know that, that your wife doesn't have this inherent desire to, to love you and to, is attracted to you physically. The, the Hebrew word that translates desire there is not the word that is used for sexual attraction. It is the word uh, to desire, to control, to dominate, to basically to destroy. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 4 when God warned Cain about sin. And he said, sin is crouching at the door and its desire. Now, what kind of desire is that? Its desire is for you. It's this controlling, domineering desire. And then, of course, uh, God also said that the man will want to rule over you. So embedded in the curse is the war of the sexes. And that has a role to play in paganism and the deterioration of a culture because what happens in paganism is you, you have the pressure of role reversal. And in paganism, without grace, you either end up with male dominance and tyranny Or you go to the other extreme and you end up with female dominance and tyranny and there's no understanding of grace within the proper role distinctions that God established for the husband and the wife. Then we come to the fourth divine institution, which is governing judicial authority, where God establishes government as a result of the Noahic covenant and delegates responsibility for capital punishment in the case of murder, and this of course sets the uh, precedent for all judicial uh, decision. This, the authority in government, in the judiciary, the authority in the judiciary is whatever government there may be, depending on the time, the place, and national entity. Then you have the fifth divine institution, which has to do with nations. And this is when God divides the people into tribal or ethnic groups as a result of the, uh, the problem at the Tower of Babel. Now, the authority over the nations, once again, is God, because God controls the heart of the king, Proverbs says. So you have, once again, everything goes back to God. These are the divine institutions. Once these divine institutions are violated... Society begins to break down. When you get into internationalism, you start having things happen like we've had recently where Supreme Court justices seek precedence for their decisions not from our own case law and from our own history, but they say, oh, well, what are they doing in Europe? What are other nations doing? And they try to substantiate their decisions on the basis of other nations, and they violate that, and this imports... Pagan ideas from other nations into our uh, legislative framework. Then you have breakdown of government where we don't uh, execute criminals anymore, and we go through these extended processes where it costs more to put somebody on death row than it does to to, to keep them under uh, life imprisonment. Family breaks down, so the parents are going in different directions. And there's no authority in the home. They're not at home to establish and teach authority. So there's a breakdown in the home. And when the children grow up and hit adolescence, uh, you know, they fragment in 25 different directions as they go through hormonal convergence and everything just goes wacko and they don't have any basis for understanding authority. And because of that, society begins to break down. You have problems with drugs, you have problems with gangs, you have problems in, in uh, education, a breakdown in the schools, all of this because there's a breakdown of parental authority. Most of the problems in education would be resolved today if parents would simply fulfill their God-given responsibilities to teach discipline to their children. Then you have marriage. You have the, one of the highest divorce rates in history. In the United States. Why? Because women want to do what they want to do and men want to do what they want to do and they follow the lust of their own soul and everybody's doing their own self-absorbed thing and they can't live together as a team. And even when they do live together, it's not as a team. It's as two people who happen to be, instead of two people in one car going down the highway, it's two people in two separate cars who happen to be driving down the highway in the same direction. But there's no real unity in the relationship. And so when they hit a speed bump, one goes one way and one goes the other way. And then they find somebody else for the next ten years. And then we get to the first divine institution, which is individual, which is individual responsibility. Now, marriage also breaks down because you have the problem of, of sexual perversion that enters in, and sexual perversion is an outgrowth of self absorption remember self absorption is a key element in arrogance, so the more arrogant a culture becomes the more they 're divorced from God, the more self absorbed they are, the more they are interested in their own Sexual pleasure, and with this, a uh, hyper attention to their own sexuality, you see a breakdown in uh, in marriage. So, let's move to the next point. This just summarizes divine establishment. Point twelve, point thirteen. As society utilizes and applies establishment principles, it's going to stabilize, strengthen, and prosper. But, point 14, when a society rejects these norms, it's going to fragment, destabilize, and lose prosperity. It all starts falling apart. Classic examples are the two chapters we're going to, we're, we're going to look at. Now, Sodom, this is point 15. Point 13, as a society applies establishment principles, it stabilizes, strengthens, and prospers. Point 14, when a society rejects, Establishment norms It fragments, destabilizes And loses prosperity Point 15 Sodom is a picture of what happens At the end of the cycle Let's just pull some principles From the overall chapter First observation People are viewed in terms of How they can be used For the benefit and pleasure Of others As soon as these two angels, these messengers who look like human beings, go into Sodom, what happens? The night comes and the residents of Sodom come and knock on Lot's door and they want him to give the visitors to them so that they can sexually abuse them all night long. You see, in in this pagan culture, people are viewed only in terms of how they can be used for benefit and personal pleasure of others. I'm not going to be interested in you for who you are, but only for what you can do for me, how you can give me pleasure, how you can make me successful, because it's all about me, and that's our culture today. Second observation, women and men are no longer viewed as individuals in the image of God. They are simply sex objects, objects of pleasure, and we see this again and again we want to know where in the world did we get all this abuse i know there was abuse in the 50s there's abuse in the 40s. there's always abuse but abuse reaches a dominant scenario in a culture when the vast majority of the people are operating on paganism You always have some people in a culture who are unbelievers and operating on paganism, and there's going to be abuse, there's going to be physical abuse, sexual abuse, and and self-absorption. But when it reaches a critical mass like it is in our culture, it's because the vast majority of people are so immersed in self-absorption and seeking personal pleasure so that they can validate their existence right now that you have this this deterioration. Third observation, as paganism dominates a culture, there is an increasing connection between sex and violence. Where was all this S&M stuff 20, 30, 50 years ago? Oh, some people say, well, we're just under the cover somewhere. Well, no, there may have been examples of it, but it's not like it is today. When you look at the, the stuff that goes on on the Internet in terms of the popularity of pornography, and all the sexual perversion that, that takes place there—it's just astounding. You go, to, and it's worse in Europe. I haven't been to Germany—I don't know—in many years, but the people I've talked to have gone over there. What's available on just standard cable in Germany isn't even uh, available on uh, paid, per, you know, paid pornographic channels in the U.S. I mean, it's so perverted, but it's just standard fare for everybody. And what we've seen as our cultures have become more perverted is this connection between sex and violence, the increase in in physical abuse. Fourth observation, sexual violence and abuse of women and men increases and becomes normative in a culture. And that's what you see in both Genesis 19 and Judges 19 is this is just viewed as normal procedure. Uh, let that person come on out so we can abuse them all night long. We we can have a gang bang rape all night. That's what it, that's what happens in both of those chapters and is a depiction of how degraded paganism becomes. Fifth, there's a rise of criminality with little concern for the victim. How modern does that sound? You know, we're more concerned with the criminal and his rights than we are with the victim and what was taken from them today. And that's exactly what you see in both of these scenarios is that there's no concern for the victim. The victim simply exists for whatever personal pleasure and benefit uh, the criminals can get out of the whole thing. So there's a rise of criminality with little concern for the victim. Okay, sixth. Homosexuality and bisexuality, this is what happens in Judges 19. Judges 19 says, send the, co- send, uh, uh, send the man out with us and, and we'll rape him all night. And uh, so the, the host says, no, I'm not going to do that, but go ahead and take his concubine and take his daughter. See, it doesn't matter whether it's a male or a female, just whatever, in order to satisfy our sexual gratification. So homosexuality and bisexuality as well as sexual gratification outside of marriage are accepted and approved. These become normative in the culture. It is so common today for people to just live together before they get married. It's extremely rare for people to remain chaste until they get married without living together. Let's try it out. And what is interesting, recent studies have shown that... The success rate of marriage, those of us who know doctrine have known this all along, but the success rate of marriages where the people have lived together ahead of time is less than the success rate of marriages where they didn't. And this is causing all the secular marriage counselors to stop and rethink their whole concept of sex and marriage. Seventh. Seventh. This emphasis on personal gratification is the eventual result of an increase in self-absorption and self-gratification that at its roots destroys the possibility of a healthy society." Once you start working through all the arrogant skills, self-absorption and self-indulgence, self-deception, self-justification, self-deification, you work through that, man becomes his own God, therefore he determines his own values, and what's really valuable is what gives me pleasure. And that begins to dominate everything. And, of course, we're living in a postmodern age. If you know anything about postmodernism or existentialism, what gives you meaning and significance in life is just to have an experience, any experience that will somehow validate or give meaning to my life. So it's all about emotion. It's all about my own personal feelings. This is what you see in, in modern forms of Christianity and the emphasis in, in a lot of the, uh, the worship that goes on today. It's what, what did the study say that I quoted at the beginning? An emphasis on personal styles of worship. It's not about truth. It's about me. Well, that's all part of it. So as uh, personal gratification is emphasized then it's just it's just the natural result of, the, uh, of self-absorption, and it destroys a healthy society. And then finally, we have to recognize that sex was not only designed for pleasure, but for procreation. Think about this. Sex is designed for pleasure. Adam and the woman were to have sex in the garden before there was a fall. There's nothing sinful about sex. Sex was designed for the pleasure of the man and the woman, the celebration of their love in marriage. But it gets distorted, like everything else, because of sin. But it's designed for pleasure. It's also designed for procreation. They were to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. When you talk about procreation, you're talking about the next generation, and the next generation, you're talking about the future. So procreation looks to the future of the race and the future of society. But homosexuality ignores the future and is willing to sacrifice the future for the pleasures of the present. It's so concerned with fulfill my gratification and lust right now that I'm willing to sacrifice the future generation, because, of course, homosexuality can't can't produce the next generation. I'm willing to sacrifice that for my own personal gratification today. Now, Sodom pictures... The end of the cycle. This is the most perverse culture that we've seen in human history, and so God, uh, it was necessary for God to judge it and to destroy it. That is our next point. Point number 16. The problems in Sodom and the cities of the plain are a microcosm of what's going on in the broader Canaanite culture as a whole and where that's headed So Sodom is just a microcosm of the whole Canaanite culture, which is so perverse. Which is why, point 17, God destroys Sodom not only as a warning to future Israel, but as a warning to all subsequent civilizations that if you allow yourselves to deteriorate and follow this pattern, then you're going to destroy yourselves in the same, in the same way. Now, I only have three more points by way of introduction. Point 18. Sodom is a direct refutation of the myth that sexual orientation and what goes on in the privacy of the bedroom is a neutral issue as far as society is concerned. Now, that is an important point. Let me restate it. Sodom, and the whole episode, is a direct refutation of this myth that sexual orientation only affects me, that sexual orientation and what goes on in the privacy of the bedroom is a neutral issue as far as society is concerned. See, that's the lie that we're told, is why do you have these laws about uh, making adultery illegal? I'll just add that so we're not just picking on the homosexuals. Why did we have laws that made adultery illegal? Why do we have laws that made homosexuality illegal? Because there was an understanding that if there is a permissiveness towards these these acts, then it was self-destructive for the culture. That they didn't just stay in the bedroom. That there was a connection between sexual activity and sexual orientation and spirituality and the integrity of a nation. And once you start allowing the dike to collapse in one area, no pun intended, once you, once things start falling apart, well, I'm just glad to see a few people snickered at that, once you start seeing things fall apart in one area, it affects all the other areas. So you can't come along and say that, well, it's just a private matter, just leave them alone, whatever they do in the privacy of their bedroom doesn't affect us. What Genesis 19 and Judges 19 demonstrate is that it does affect us. It is both a cause and an effect. So, point 19, Divine Viewpoint teaches that homosexuality is a direct attack on the first three divine institutions on individual responsibility, on marriage, and on family. It's a direct attack on the first three divine institutions, Institutions, and it results in an assault on the fourth and fifth divine institutions. Once you start tearing down the first three divine institutions, it will domino into a destruction of judicial authority and the nation. So once you let things start falling apart, everything falls apart. Okay, that was point number 19. Point number 20, there are parallels between this episode in Sodom and the episode in Judges 19. Let me just go through this very quickly. What happens in Judges chapter 19, you might want to turn there with me just briefly. I'm just going to summarize it. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. You have a situation where you have a Levite who's living up in the north of Israel. And there's a reminder in the first verse, it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite. Now, if you know anything about Judges, the key verse that's repeated twice is in, uh, Judges, I think Judges 17, I don't remember the verse, in Judges 20. There was no king in the land, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's a classic example of what happens under moral, uh, moral relativism. And so we're reminded of that principle just by the statement in the first verse, that there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim, and he took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. So he heads south and he takes a concubine. A concubine's not a wife. She had a legal status. She's not just a live-in lover. She had a technical legal status, sort of a wife one step removed. And she's immoral, which is an, it just shows you how how totally perverted this culture in Israel had become. He takes this, this uh, uh, concubine, rather than a wife, takes her back home, and then she commits adultery on him. She just becomes a prostitute uh, and starts running around on him. And finally she just leaves him and goes back home in Bethlehem. So he gets up and he goes back south to Bethlehem and is going to get her. He stays at the father's house for three or four days, and the father says, when he gets ready to leave, the father says, don't go now, stay another day. Uh, then when he gets ready to leave on the fifth day, the father said, don't go now, stay another day. And finally he says, I've just got to go. Now, all of that just sets up what happens. He waits so long to leave in the day that he can't get very far, and he comes up to Jerusalem. Now, if you know anything about Bethlehem and Jerusalem. They're only about five or six miles apart. They're very close. They're they're within ten miles of each other. So he didn't get very far because he started so late in the day, and he starts to turn into Jerusalem, which is called in this passage uh, Jebus. And we're told in verse 10 that he came opposite Jebus, and in verse 11 they were near Jebus. The day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge there. Now, the Jebusites were Canaanites. They were pagans. They weren't Jews. But his master said to him, Now, we're not going to stay in a city of foreigners. We're not going to stay with the pagans because that's dangerous. Let's go a little further, and we will go to Gibeah. And we'll spend the night there. And this is really ominous because what happens in Gibeah is probably much worse than what would have happened among the pagans. And in Gibeah, it's in a culture that is Jewish. They've got the norms and standards of the Mosaic Law. But it's an illustration of how perverted things were in Israel. So they come to Gibeah, and they come in. They go into the open square of the city. Because and verse fifteen says, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. Now, typical Middle Eastern uh, hospitality dictated that someone would open their house to them, but nobody did. So right right around right now, we see there's a problem that they uh, they can't find a place to stay. And then this man comes in, who himself is from Eph- Ephraim. He's not a native from from Gibeah, so he's an alien. He's that is, he's from an outside of the town. And he sees them there in the square and uh, recognizes that they want to spend the night there. And he warns them off. See, they want to spend the night there, just sort of camp out in the, in the open square. And he says, no, don't you dare. This is dangerous. You come and stay in my house. See, we'll see the same thing that happens in Sodom. He knows what will happen. And so he invites them to stay with them. And so they went into his house, and they're having dinner together, and they're sharing a meal. This is the fourth parallel, the insistence of the host. The travelers agree to spend the night in his house. Fifth point, the host washes the guest's feet and gives them a meal. And they share a meal together. And then the seventh point I have up there, the point of parallel, is from verse 22. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men... So the Bible clearly recognizes that homosexuality is a deviant behavior. It is not normal. You're not born that way. This is deviant behavior because you're following uh, your sin nature, and it's been that way for a while. And as we saw in Romans 1, it's a sign of God's judgment on a culture. So you have these these perverted men come and surround the house, beat on the door, and say, bring out the man... Uh, who came to your house, that we may know him carnally. They want to just gang-rape him during the night. But the man, who, remember, isn't from Gibeah, says, No, you can't do that. How inhospitable can you be? Don't act so wickedly. Look, take my virgin daughter and his concubine. And you see how, how perverted he's become. He's only one step removed from being at the bottom of the barrel. They're at the bottom of the barrel and see how he just treats his own daughter and the concubine as nothing more than uh, you know, a sex object. This is typical of paganism. So he gives them, and so all night they, they take the concubine, and they take her out, and they, they rape her all night long. And then the next morning you have this pathetic scene where you just see her dragging herself to the door, barely having the strength to knock on the door, and her master, the Le- Levitical priest, opens the door, looks down and sees her there passed out, and he says very callously and coldly, get up, let's go. He's not concerned about her, her welfare at all. She's nothing more than just like a piece of baggage. And then discovers that she's, that she's dead. Then he's incensed about it. Why? Because they've hurt his property. doesn't have anything to do with the care and concern for her or any ultimate morality. He's just concerned about what they've done to him. So in order to get everybody else upset about this, he chops her body up into 12 parts. This is in Israel. do doesn't tell us what time of the year it was. I've often wondered how quickly the body decomposed. They took these body parts, and they start sending them to the 12 tribes to get everybody else riled up, which they did. And there's this civil war that ensues between the other 11 tribes and the tribe of Benjamin. And in the course of this, you have three days of battle that are described in chapter 20. The first day, Israel loses, and they they lose 22,000 men. The second day, they lose a battle again. They lose 18,000 men. And then on the third day, they do defeat the Benjamites, and 25,100 Benjamites are destroyed. And so you see that the sexual sin isn't something that's just a private matter. It results in civil war and the implosion of the whole culture. Now, this is the picture that God gives us of what happens under paganism when men reject the norms and standards of establishment truth and the morality that's taught in the Scripture. That sets us up. Next time we'll look and analyze Genesis 19 to see what's going on there. Then we're going to draw principles from that and look at the dominant myths that are promoted today in our culture about homosexuality. And that's going to be a little technical. I'm going to try not to make it dry, try to boil it down. But we need to hear some of this stuff. There's too many people you run into uh, it was a conversation I had just about three or four weeks ago. And I was talking to an individual, and they said, well, it's just accepted reality that, that people are born uh, homosexual or heterosexual. That's just the way it is. And I said, in fact, the, the people who conducted the studies that that is allegedly based on don't even agree that that's a legitimate conclusion. But yet this is how it's been presented in the media. So we'll look at about nine or ten myths related to homosexuality and debunk them because we as believers need to understand what's really going on and we build this whole thing from a framework of a Christian worldview. Okay, next time we'll get into it a little more with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word for the way Your Word is so perspicuous that it helps us to understand the trends of history, the trends of culture, the impact of pagan thought on a society. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have your word that, that strengthens us, that gives us hope and confidence, and that we have your faithfulness to rely on, that you are indeed a good God and a gracious God. You've provided salvation for us, and that no matter how horrible things may appear in our own culture, no matter how how we may observe the deterioration of of the culture around us, we know that you are the God of history and you are in control. And that gives us uh, confidence, and it gives us peace. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we study this evening, understand our culture, that we may be like the men of Issachar in Second Chronicles, men who understood their times. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.